0: Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. In this episode, Rob and Roman have a good old-fashioned chat about everything from John Richardson's biography of Picasso to feeding your aging soul with a good book. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Rob. And you know, Roman, I, I've been thinking we've we've had... Uh... Over the last few months, we've had a lot of guests. We've had a lot of interesting conversations. So I've been thinking about that and and thinking about what those conversations have have triggered in me because there's really been a ton. And and we we've you and I have talked that um, we you know did a lot of preparation to 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 to, me, to speak to these guests, to know their books, to know what they're into. So there was a lot there, and then just to to kind of meet them, to to talk with them a lot sort of came at me personally, and I'm trying to uh, understand it all. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And, um, and then I've also just been uh, doing some some reading uh, far afield a bit. Uh, just finished a two-volume biography of the uh, British painter Lucian Freud. Interesting stuff came up there. And, and I did get the um, you know uh, advanced copy of the Philip Roth bio. So that, that comes out uh, in April. Um, and I've been going through that and, uh, already, you know, uh, I'm a big Roth fan and there's a lot that is sort of flying around. Um, but, but curious, you know, what, what you think in terms of all these guests and I mean, we, we've covered a tremendous amount of ground and we've read so many books. Um, anything In that a comes mind? short time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I, I thought about this, um, the other day when I was taking a walk. About kind of my sort of my reading trajectory or, or or my reading life. Uh, And I I think it's, um, it's, it's one of those situations where I get very excited about something and I usually read everything by the author that I get excited about Um, with this podcast. What we're trying to do is, is, is makes that impossible. So, so I've been, I've been kind of, kind of going into override and for reading that's not the best thing i i I do like to i think you need a fallow period you need a period where the reading is not directed or maybe you're not doing as much reading um so things kind of settle in your mind i'm just not a super reader you know piglia put me to shame uh (laughs) as we talked about in the last podcast or you know previously and and um I just can't do that. So 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 I don't. So I I allow myself periods of where I either don't read extensively or read a little bit here a little bit there. Um there are no periods in my life where I don't read. I mean there are a few days of obviously when I just, you know, don't don't open a book, but um in general I I miss reading if I don't do it on any particular day uh and I, I feel like I'm not doing my thing. Like I'm, I'm watching Netflix or something and it's just not, it's not the same kind of food. I, I miss the food that I get from books. Um, but at the same time, like, like you're saying, you're, it's, it's hard to have directed reading all the time because then you're not there. You're not, yeah. you're, you're doing something external and it's got to come from the inside.
0: Right. And it, it, I mean, I, you and I never, uh, went to graduate school, at least not for literature. And so I did in the last six months get a sense of what it must've been like to know that you had to cover a certain amount of text in a short period of time, some of which you may have been very excited about others, which you, um, you know, maybe just needed to know, you know, in a sense. And so it, it has felt a little bit like that. And um, it just, in some ways, uh it hasn't allowed me the serendipity in my own reading life. And it just hasn't allowed me to I think what you're getting at, just to to stumble upon, you know, odd stuff. Um right. and so I I'm still trying to kind of sort through um you know all of that. And um yeah, I mean we I we just like
1: two- I just like it, you know, you know what I like, Rob, is is, is like this whole serendipity thing. That's the that's that's the only method unless unless something somebody tells me specifically you gotta read this Roman. This is gonna be yeah. perfect for you. Uh which you know happens, but rarely. Um the serendipity part is exactly what gets me to read things that uh I I just don't like to follow the crowd. You know what I mean? I don't like the whatever is the latest, whatever is the greatest. Um and so I, I, I like I like what Ken Campbell used to say. You know, I'm not mad. I just read different books. So, mm. <laughs> I like to read books that are kind of unusual. And the only way to find those books, if you don't, is if you don't look for them. <laughs> they come to you. Um, yeah. So that process is a little bit weird, and it's it kind of resembles a, a, a bit of a bipolar situation. I mean, I, I hate to use mental illness as a as a metaphor for this. Uh, I'm actually working on a on a book uh, on bipolar uh, for a friend who who had it, where her her sister had it, and so I'm exposed to this kind of on a daily basis just through work, and it made me think of my own reading, where you know you know you know me, I get I get super enthused, I was I get enthusiastic, like my God, you got to read this, you know, you got to read this author, and then sometimes for months, and you know sometimes for years, I've had the these fallow periods where. I'm a little depressed in my reading. I, I don't I don't find anything that really fits. Or maybe I read some nonfiction, which is nice, but that's not my bag. I love literature, um, and so it's a little depressing because I'm like, where is where is this? Where is my next love? You know, where is where is this book or this author? Um, yeah. And sometimes uh, that author is right in front of my eyes, but it's just not the right time, and I can't get yep. into it and just have to wait and i don't know exactly what where the switch is that flips it back to them that sort of manic phase where i'm all excited about things but i can't, it's not under my control yeah
0: and and we we've what we've discovered is we've been fortunate enough that you know we have a small group of people who listen and it they've introduced us to writers or or we've come in contact with writers who were like wow we'd really love to talk to them and and we we have and we feel really lucky that way but it also um you know we found that um there are more and more writers we could we could invite, we could read their books, we could, you know, prepare for that. But um, you know, we we aren't uh, NPR, we aren't BBC. Um, you know, Charlie Rose before he uh uh got in trouble with um uh, before lot Charlie of people, Rose
1: fell. He yeah, rose and
0: fell. Yeah. Before oh, he molested yeah. uh, you know, half of New York City. Um, you know, I mean, this guy was getting paid to to really do that—to to, to read the entire body of works for some guest and prepare and write notes. And then um, uh, you're it doing it for
1: a, something. Was he doing a, a it for himself?
0: You know, You're doing it for a for
1: something. You're not doing it for for your sort of spiritual. What I you know whatever books? Yeah. Role you know whatever role books play in our lives. You don't. You're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it for some other reason. So uh, right. sometimes when the stars align, you do it for both reasons, which is great, but that's rare, totally. you
0: know? Yeah, and it, it you know, just kind of thinking aloud here is, um, you know, we read about uh, Ricardo Piglia and his single-mindedness, his ability to kind of forego immediate fame and recognition knowing that he was on the right path set for him. And then I was reading about Lucian Freud, the British painter, grandson of Sigmund Freud, and, you know, in an era when abstract abstract impressionism was hot and um, you know, people were not looking for figurative painting, they were not looking for portraits, you know, this is what he was interested in. And so he really, really went against the grain. And a lot of people thought um, you know, his stuff was just irrelevant, you know, considering what Jackson Pollock was doing and Warhol and people like that. But this is you know, the vision that he had for himself, uh, the world eventually caught up with him. And then, you know, just started digging into the, the Philip Roth biography and he had the same attitude. However, you know, the world was aligned with his talents and his will, uh, early on, right. When he was 26, his first novel, Goodbye Columbus won the national book award. So, you know, um, you just you follow your nose you f- you you have integrity sometimes the world is aligned with you, and probably in most cases it's not but um I mean those are the people that I know you and I are attracted to and we don't spend tons of time thinking about the podcast, but in terms of what it is um, but I guess that's probably what we would hope for it that it would it would it would follow our our sense of vision for it and and not compromise yeah. to what is uh uh trendy or 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 that kind of stuff. So so you're you're hearing us think aloud right here <laughs> on the podcast about what We're trying the podcast. to do I think, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um yeah, you know,
1: um I mean and, and there's a lot of room for error here because when you extemporize like that, when you just talk totally. um you know, we we tend to not edit unless there's a technical issue. Um I think it's part of the part of the reason why people just listen to us because we just sometimes come up with interesting stuff. and uh, I think part and parcel of that is sometimes we say we say kind of stupid things or or wrong things yeah. or, or make a mistake in our factual things that we say. Um, but, Rob, I
0: mean, we've been talking like this forever, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. so it's almost like, yeah, kind yeah. of getting back to to basics a little bit because, you know one of the things that in in our um quick apprenticeship over the last six months to have lots of guests. And again, to really be lucky, people like, um, you know, Mauro, Javier Cardenas, and Stephen Moore, is one of the things you learn is that you you prepare questions, and you want to be um, responsible, and you want to have a an organization to the conversation. But at the same time, you also want to be uh, available, right, to respond to the the spark of the conversation in the moment. And so, um, I would love to talk to someone like, you know, Terry Gross or something, and say, "How do you do that?" I, I am sure she prepares endlessly, and then at the last moment, if if the uh, her guest is going in a certain direction, you know, that's where you want to go, right? That's where the energy mm. is. So that so that's something that. Um, you Know we're book people, we're not podcasters, we're not journalists, and um, I you know I've been learning um, and thinking a lot about that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's a definitely yeah, a learning I want to keep it, I mean, yeah, <laughs> and certainly just want to just want to keep it real. I mean, at the end of the day, so um, yeah, and and look, I mean, super important. Terry
1: Gross has had decades to hone her craft, and she's amazing. Um, yeah, I don't think we'll be Terry Grossing anybody out anytime soon, <laughs> but um. um I mean, uh, you know, certain certain guest appearances that we've had, I think I flubbed it in terms of over-talking and, you know, you learn about that. And also, I'll tell you, uh, I think we're seeing the end of the, the end of the tunnel here, the light at the end of the tunnel with COVID. But I, uh, during some of our recordings, I was not in the best of mental health, <laughs> you know. And so that also kind of
0: played, played a part cool. in, 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 in our recordings, I think, you know, totally. I mean, I, I had a semi meltdown this morning until, um, you know, we decided to, uh, you know, it's a very cold rainy day here in Portland. I mean, I guess relatively mild considering, but you know, not a a day that you really want to go out, go out on the town, but I just had to get out of the house. I work from home and, uh, you know, I was just stuck mentally stuck. Like I didn't want to leave the house, but I knew I had to leave the house. And so we ended up, um, going to, uh, Portland and you know eating outside it was pouring we were under a canopy it was like 44 degrees or something I mean it was kind of ridiculous okay. but what are you going to do you know so it it right. shows you how like I felt much better just to get out of the house and to be in a semi-normal environment you know although again who dines out when it's 46 degrees but um
1: well you know yeah, i'm i'm looking forward to dining out myself yeah i'm so missing going out to restaurants i we haven't really That's done sorry. that that much um but uh, this morning i did go you know this area over here the ventura is just beautiful and uh i went to took, took uh, my wife and daughter and we just got in the car we drove to the mountains you know and <laughs> A thousand feet, two thousand feet, three thousand feet, just kept getting higher and higher. And there was nobody around. There were no noises, no sounds. Um, It was just a relief, a relief to have that kind of uh, cleanse of the senses, you know, just. And then we saw the clouds from above because it's kind of a a cloudy day in Ventura, which is very unusual. (laughs) And uh, Mm. it was a magical, magical hour or two before we came down literally came down a little bit <laughs> physically and spiritually a little bit uh, back yeah. into, you know, the, the daily life, uh, the Sunday. And uh, it's so important to do that kind of stuff. Um, and I think in a way it's, it parallels our reading. Our, our reading also has to, sometimes we're just reading, you know, sort of speak in, in this, pressure cooker of, of life. We're reading for work, we're reading for podcasts, we're reading for a s- certain goal. Uh, but sometimes you just need to get out and just yeah. wander around in this, in this sea of words and see what's out there and just look at the vistas and maybe not uh, read the small print. Uh, maybe yeah. just space out a little bit. There's nothing wrong. There's a very kind of a feminine energy to spacing out. And I think people are and I don't mean spacing out, you know, just like in a stupid way, but just, just unfocusing your mind and not having it so tense all the time. Um, it's so important. It's so difficult to do because it is a feminine energy and we live in a very kind of a masculine world, um, at least in the West. Um, so a balance, you know, balancing is, is, it's one of those catch, catch words that everybody says, you got to keep a balance, but it's, it's hard to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and um I mean I think to to tie it back to some of the conversations we've had I mean you want to find that book that somehow you know taps the electricity of life and and um you know the the early life of Philip Roth you know he was casting about he was trying to get his PhD in literature at the University of Chicago and he started you know writing these short stories and he didn't really know what to write about um he still hadn't really thought of you know, his his background in Newark, New Jersey, in a Jewish community is something that he could really sort of tap. And so he just started, you know, playing with themes that he thought would be interesting. He wrote, he wrote a story about, um, you know, Japanese soldiers in the Philippines who didn't know the war was over and were still fighting, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and he was around other um, grad students and so forth who were writing short stories, very, very talented people. But there was this mystery to his talent um that that just simply couldn't be explained by you know he did work hard but it so did other people you know he was well read but so were other people and so there's this mystery you know to art and to great writers that um that's always interesting and in the part of when i tend to get in a in a funk you know with work and covid and Whatever it is, feeling like my life doesn't have a lot of variety or spice, I tend to realize that i've I've lost a sense of mystery about life. Um, and you know that can happen with your your reading life as well. And so, um you know that's something that I've been kind of thinking about because I've always had a certain spiritual you know dimension to my life, whether it was, you know um, you know, Zen Buddhism that you and I shared or, uh, various points in and out of my life with the Catholic church and Catholic spirituality, but now is sort of, um, a more, you know, materialistic, uh, you know, period of my life. And I, and I was thinking about this phrase, um, that the Catholic church used to use, and it's kind of interesting to think about it with literature as well. And they used to talk about the mystery of the faith. And by mystery, they didn't necessarily mean like a detective novel, like, you know, we don't know who did it, or we don't know anything. I mean, the Catholic Church tends to have answers. Um, But it was a sense that there are certain unknowable things, you know, almost in a kind of Wittgenstein sense. You know, there are certain things that are, we can't quite, or theologically, we're not going to really be able to get our human brain around, you know the universe, that kind of thing. And so um, I don't know how that's related to our our daily reading, Roman, but I feel like there's something there. I feel like it's- um, Absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's I, not related.
1: I, it's, it's pivotal. It's crucial.
0: You know, it's like um, I have these four volumes, if you can believe it, of, of the life of Picasso by this incredible man whom I love. His name is John Richardson. He was an art historian. A uh, curator, and he knew Picasso as a young man when Picasso was aging out in Europe um, in the in the '60s. And I, I've dipped in and out of this. This is you know the definitive uh, you know biography of Picasso, and I am just so attracted to Picasso's life uh, right now, and I I want to give myself you know it's like a like a, a love affair. I want to give myself totally to Picasso and in, in these bi these biographies, but um, you know, I, I I have this responsible self too, who who you know wants to read X Y Z and write essays and and do do this and that. But sometimes you know you almost have to just uh, throw caution to the wind, right? And and
1: uh, I mean and, how you know, it also depends. Ha- how have the affair. The, the,
0: the, well, the
1: intensity, the intensity of this affair, the intensity of our reading. Uh, varies, you know, depending our, on your energy levels, depending on the month, depending on your head, well, you know, depending on so many factors. But it, it it waxes and wanes, and we have to sort of catch the tail, the dragon's tail, and, and, and ride with it when it does offer itself to us. Um, but then when you don't see it anywhere, pushing it, it just doesn't work. It, it can't yeah. push it. So you said it's four volumes. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's thousands of
0: pages. Um, that's it. Totally, yeah. So, yeah. So, that's... so each particular volume is not overwhelming, but certainly four mm-hmm. volumes is is intense. And in fact, I should say more accurately. So, three volumes have been published. He died in the spring of 2020 at the age of 91, and he had just handed in the manuscript for you know the last 20 years of Picasso's life. So, I'm I'm waiting for that to be issued. It literally, I think it's like any any day we could get the the fourth and final volume of uh, john richardsons the life of picasso so that'll be a you know uh, i mean you know i i if i could summon him from the grave <laughs> i would uh, i would love to talk to him he um, he did a bunch of interviews over the years with charlie rose uh speaking of uh mr uh-huh. rose again <laughs> um and they're well worth finding on YouTube, uh, you know, because John Richardson was a, you know, a, a character, a, a, you know, a, a British bon bonviant, uh, you know, cultured in the way that people aren't anymore, um, you know, a collector himself. So not only as an art critic, but a collector and, you know, just like, you know, lived in a castle in the south of France with his uh, his partner, who was a collector back in the day. I mean, just the kind of life that people don't leave in lead anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Picasso uh, respected him and, uh, you know, gave him a lot of access. So just just a wonderful world, you know, that that I want to spend time in. Um, you know, wouldn't it be just ideal to, if you if, if you lived like in a monastery or something, had no other responsibilities? Well, yeah, I, I right. Because I want to um, <laughs> I, I want to study it you know, I really want to study the life of Picasso. I want to, um, my, my knowledge of art history is, is shaky, although I'm, I'm, you know, an amateur enthusiast, but I've never, I didn't, I never studied art history. Um, I haven't really delved into the subject deeply, but I would really love to. And and I think these books are so comprehensive and, um, they're filled with, um, photographs of, you know, his sketches and drawings and prints and so forth. I think you could really uh, teach yourself. It's like a mini course in art history. If you were to go through these four books very, very carefully um, And and Picasso to understand him is also really to understand, you know, the 20th century, right. His lifespan, right. you know, um, both world wars. And of course he was exiled from Spain, his entire life because of Franco and the Spanish civil war and um, you know, really, really fascinating. And of course, you know, it's hard for us to think now, but when Picasso rolled into Paris, you know, around 1900, you know, Picasso was modern beyond modern. He, he, he was on the very, very cutting, cutting edge. And, um, you know, his art represented, now it seems like, you know, they're refrigerator magnets, but his art was, it really represented all that modernity, you know, could promise and offer both, both you know as a comfort and also as a very challenging, you know, phenomenon. So I'm, I'm, you know, very attracted to him on all sorts of levels, um, but it waits for me. It well, waits know, for it, me like, a, like a big challenge, you know, like uh, my my own, you know, Mount Everest kind of thing.
1: Interesting because I just I was just thinking as you were talking because my um, my mother-in-law is a big art lover, huge, huge art lover, and she. Mm. She would make these trips to Europe, um, mm. you know, back in the day, in the late 60s and early 70s. She, actually, my wife, I think, was maybe a year or a year and a half old, and she dragged my, my wife as a, as a baby to Paris. Oh, really? Uh, and you know what, Rob? We, um, in, this, you know, in this house that I'm sitting in, there is actually some artwork by Picasso. Um, Are you serious? Wow. Yes, I am. I'm not kidding you. Um, there's a bunch of Picasso. There's like I think there's a Kandinsky or two. There's definitely a Dali. Dali a uh, whole album of stuff. Um, she was a big fan early on. Um, so yeah, I've I uh, not not in this room, but in the other room, there's a bunch of I could look at the walls and you know oh,
0: there it is because I because <laughs> I know when it comes to this uh, uh, pottery and ceramics by Picasso, he he was so prolific towards the end of his life. He really explored that. That, I mean, I think you can, you know, you can buy a Picasso ceramic for, I don't know, you know, ten thousand dollars online. Or, or right, are, right. are these are these small paintings or are these? Uh, uh, they're they're not paintings. They're. Um, sure. I, I'm sorry, my my
1: art knowledge is pretty much nil. Uh, it, sure. It's not a painting. It's something else. Um, etching, etching, etchings, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's etchings. Um, Um, so, but they're, but they're very cool looking. They're definitely distinctive. Uh, They catch the eye. Um, so I, I remember just watching this. Oh my gosh. The sense of time is completely gone. I think it must've been now two years ago. Uh, National Geographic Channel had these biographies of famous people that they were, uh, they, uh, fictionalized or at least, you know, Javier Bardem played Picasso in this. I don't. Know, did you did you oh. see that by any chance? I don't
0: think I did. No. Um,
1: it's a multi-series kind of thing, like eight episodes per life. That, that yeah. Einstein, that Jeffrey Rush was Einstein. He was awesome. Uh, I love Jeffrey Rush in general. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so uh, Javier Bardem, you know, they they shaved his skull. You know, he was got kind of a bald, and uh, he did a pretty decent job. And he actually, you know, gave me an understanding a little bit of Picasso without. Uh, Without having to read four volumes, but I'm sure this is a right. completely different experience. It's a completely different experience where you're reading like that uh, than yeah. watching a silly and, National Geographic special, and, you know.
0: And what what really attracts me, and, and these are the biographies that I, I, I do have a special love for biographies, but I, I look for the ones that also are written by people who who are artists in the – in and of themselves who are beautiful writers, right. Who, who yeah. um, and, and so that's rare to find. And I really look for those in particular, in particular, I mean, the, you know, the Richard Ellman biography of, um, James Joyce is a, yes. you know, a, an incredible example, but John Richardson was a, a, an incredible writer. He had honed his writing, you know, for years doing, um, you know, art reviews. And then he was, a um, a curator for art shows. So he would often, you know, have to publish, right. Those, um, Those monographs, when they have a you know an exhibition, and he would you know write a lot of the essays, so he he had really honed his uh, his skills over many years. And the other part that really attracts attracts me to his project is that if I'm not mistaken, I think he was in his 60s when he began the first volume. So right, so he died when he was 91. So the last 30 years of his life, he started and finished you know the crowning achievement of his life, and so. Um, you know, that attracts me. I, I have certain, uh, there are certain books and essays I wish I had already gotten out of the way, (laughs) um, and sometimes regret that I'm not, you know, younger for that purpose. Um, but it does make you think that, you know, um, there are still decades ahead where you can, um, apply yourself and, and, and do the kind of work that, you know, you feel is inside of you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's yeah. very, it's a very nice example to have for sure. It's inspiring. Um, and then, you know, to, to tie it back with Philip Roth, I mean, he was prolific his whole life, but there's general agreement that, you know, these three books at the very end of his life, um, uh, the human stain, I married a communist and American pastoral. Um, these were written in the late nineties, early aughts. And, and it's generally considered that, you know, th- these are his three masterpieces. And so, you know, what an achievement to have, you know, written, you know, books like Portnay's Complaint and, um, you know, Sabbath's Theater and and all of these incredible books. Do
1: you have examples of Nabokov, for instance, who, I hate to say this, he went downhill. Uh, His later novels, I mean, I'm sure people can argue uh, things like transparent things and whatnot, but they seem to be very... Flim and slim and and insubstantial. Though, right. so, you know, he surely put a lot of work into them. I don't mean to slam him that way, but uh, it just pales in comparison, I uh, would like to say, pale fire, you know? Um, right. So well, it's not everybody who well, does late, that.
0: Absolutely. So that's why I, I find late work really, really fascinating. And I, and I think I have talked about this on the podcast before, but. You know, Henry James, uh, you know, has an example of his late work. And, of course, Beethoven. And, um, you know, off the top of my head, I'm not going to be able... Even Picasso. Picasso's late works were uh, a great disappointment to his, you know, millions of fans at the time. His his stuff in the late 60s, early 70s, just before he died. But now, you know, with with 50 years of distance, people are going, my goodness, how do we miss this? This was his his late, great final period is his, his, um, you know, final statement, uh, to all of us about his vision. And, and so, so that really, really attracts me. The, I, the idea of doing, you know, great late work. I find it less appealing, interesting. And when it comes to politicians, you know, Joe Biden is, is really old, uh, and, you know, seems to have done a decent job so far, but I, I find it, I, I want to see it with artists. I think with political figures, I'd rather see younger people, uh, you yeah, know, contribution. But, um, I mean, yeah. first of all, I mean,
1: the, the brain, the brain, as the older brain has a lot of challenges. So, those who overcome those challenges and still produce incredible things, um, really are commendable, I think. Um, yeah. but then, you know, you mentioned Beethoven, he wasn't really that old when he died. So, sure, you know, but, but again, his trajectory, uh, is just up and up and up. Uh, Towards the end of his life, it's just up and up. There's no down, you know. Just uh, the mm-hmm. the late quartets, the symphony, is um, it's just the masterworks of his, the crowning achievements.
0: Because um, I, so. I, I'm sure you feel it too. You know, you and I are are both, you know, fifty ish, and um, you know, there are times where you just feel. I, I'm sure you must feel in your case, like you know, I. I had a family. I raised a family. I, I've, you know, I've done this, I've done that. I, and, and, you know, you almost feel like, well, you know, you can, you can sort of like, you know, whatever I, I you know, I, I can kind of slide here a little bit mentally or, um, you know, it's not that big a deal, the, the, the sharpness that you might've had at, you know, 22. And so right. I, you know, I'm not a Taoist. Um, so I, I tend to, Maybe it's the Catholic uh, background, but I always tend to try to want to push back against certain sliding in myself. Um, I want to, when I see myself shirking a bit, and you can define that in all sorts of ways, I, I I try to want to push back a little bit and see what happens. Um, but I can find no, I think it happens there's, naturally. Yeah. There's more resistance now. To uh, you know, the shirking side of me um, has a lot. Seems to have a lot lar- Seems to be more sophisticated in its arguments. You know, like, well, look, you know, <laughs> you've done this, you've done that. You're 50. You've, you know, what do you have to prove? Right there, there's a um, there's a more more of a sales pitch, uh, a more sophisticated sales pitch than than when I was younger. Well, oh, I mean, uh, you
1: gotta you gotta feed your soul at whatever age you are at. You know, so if 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 let's say if uh, you know everything goes well, and let's say I reach my nineties, uh, uh, I'd still want to enjoy beauty. I'd still, uh, you know, I have examples. For instance, uh, you know, Raymond Smullyan, who I was lucky enough to know in his nineties, um, wonderful person, your philosopher, musician. He just played the piano every day. He's getting he had various arth- arthritis, and mm. he didn't always hit the right notes, but uh, but he sought that beauty, that aesthetic. Um, satisfaction just fills your soul uh in his mid 90s it just you know it just kept on doing it because if there's no beauty i don't see what's the point of going on so i for me it's an aesthetic thing i i can space out uh and and it's fine if i'm spacing out into beauty uh, you know if i'm looking at a landscape and the the the, the sort of the the busy, rational mind is is turned yeah. off or muted. Um, or if I'm staring at some birds over a parking lot that, you know, I was. Uh, I drove my my father-in-law to get his second shot, second jab, uh, COVID vaccine. And I waited. I had to wait half an hour because he's in his 80s and he had to take an extra time to, you know, wait there in the building with, with his daughter, my wife. <laughs> and so I was in the parking lot uh, at the Ventura Fairgrounds. And it's just this huge space, mostly empty because it was the end of the day. And I, you know, I had my book with me. I was reading and then I just put it down and I just spaced out. I just looked at the seagulls and I I let myself, my mind wander. Um, And it's, it, it, it filled up some sort of tank in me, you know, it, it, it did some sort of thing that I couldn't have done if I, let's say, kept on reading my book and, it was an interesting book and everything, but it's, it's the yin and the yeah. yang. I don't know what to tell you. It's got to, you have to have that kind of. Absolutely. That kind of quietest sort of approach sometimes when, when you keep hitting your head on the rock and get bloody, you're like, okay, maybe I should stop for a second.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and I, I, you know, uh, full disclosure, I, you know, I feel that now in my own life that I think I need to kind of, one of those times that's happened throughout my entire life, it's time to clear the decks a bit, you know, kind of slow things down. You know, maybe it's time to grab the meditation cushion again. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, things, things start to get too hectic and I have to kind of well, look, it's, pull, it's back, attention. pull back, it's, it's- simplify. And it's a it's a constant process that I've seen now. I mean, this is one of the great things about getting older, is I see, aha, okay. Um because being, you know, tired, burnt out, and over revved helps nobody, and and I've I've seen that it doesn't help uh, my colleagues at work. It doesn't help, you know, you or Heston. It doesn't help my wife, and it certainly doesn't help me. Um, so it's an interesting process, but I I do feel it's harder to reset, at least for me, in in you know the pandemic version of life, um, and so that's something that I'm. Yeah. You know, cha- challenge with and struggling. You know, I, I was talking to Tom Way, and we were walking, and I'm, I'm curious what you think. Um, I almost wonder if at some point there will be the virus will be low enough that we'll be able to have fairly definitive rulings on, you know, how much back to normal we can get. So I'm not sure when that would be, but I almost feel like if Biden was smart and he had. He seems to be a you know soulful person in a in a way that a political figure could be. Is that I almost imagine that when we reach some endpoint, some place where it's kind of done, that we would almost have like three days of national mourning, yet yet also national celebration. Like I can almost see, like um, again, you know, the way the Catholic Church handles um, you know, Easter, right? There's Good Friday, which is the day that Christ was crucified. And that's a sad day, right? That's a day of mourning. And then Saturday is an in-between day. And then Sunday is Easter, right? And it's like, rejoice, go crazy, you know, whatever, eat everything you want. Lent is over. And I almost feel like, like psychologically, the country needs something like that, where, um, you know, everyone's off. It's like three days of a national holiday, and and then, you know, uh, the third day is like, you know, freaking concerts in Washington, D.C., Beyonce and freaking Lady Gaga. And like, we did it, you know, <laughs> but you have to mourn too like, you know, half a million people died. I, I just feel like if there's no sense of marking or transition from from this to the to to what follows, I think it's a real mistake. Uh, I don't think the United States has any kind of cultural unity or political unity to do that. right? But it did occur to me, I mean, again, the Catholic church for all of its faults, it's been doing this for 2000 years and they have a certain understanding of, of that like birth, life, death, ritual in, in the life of human beings. And they're pretty good at it. Um, Understanding that human beings need these transitional moments, uh, particularly in a communal way, right? When you get married it's not private, right? You and your spouse don't get married alone in the attic, right? It's sort of a public right. act. It's like a communal thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is – probably this is the episode, Roman, where we lose most of our podcast audience. They're <laughs> like, I thought they were supposed to talk about books. Well, we're just chilling. Well, there we're you just go. chilling, Rob. We're chilling. We're just we're chilling. chilling. Look, we, we always talk about books even
1: when we're not talking about them You know, because all these ideas are coming at us. that are going through right. our heads. They're of course not just coming from books, but mainly for us as readers, as yeah. people dedicated to the to the book, they do come from books. Um, mm. I I uh, I I can't usually uh, cite everything that's in my mind to a certain to a certain you know passage or author. <laughs> Uh, because it's all kind of jumbled in there. And I kind of admire people who do, but at the same time, yeah. I, I don't like that because, you know, that's just you you appropriate it and it's yours at that point. Um, if it's becoming part of your thinking, it's nice to know the source, uh, but sometimes the sources are all muddled and mixed together. And I think that's how our, at least my brain works. Um, so, yeah, so I, I I agree with you. It's, it's uh, it would be lovely to have some sort of a carnival type of,
0: it yeah. Up a situation.
1: Yeah. Um, do you remember? Do you remember? Um, this is this is something that stuck in my head, and maybe we should do not something like that, but it just anyway. Here's what happened. Do you remember when China had the, the, the outbreak initially, and they really really clamped down, and just went crazy in in the masks and everything, and 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 quote unquote stopped it. Um, and then they had this kind of symbolic uh, ceremony where they showed uh, people. Uh, unmasking themselves, they would take the mask, and then the camera would mo- move to the next person, and oh. they would take the mask off. Do you remember that image? I remember that spe- I very specifically. That. I didn't see that. Oh. It was like a PR stunt, really. Like, oh, we, we China, was so great, we beat the virus. It was way too early very to right. do that, but you know, nonetheless, they uh, and I remember that feeling, like, oh my god, they can do that, and we can't. You know, they can, yeah. they can do that. I want to do that. Uh, and speaking of, of of that, by the way, <laughs> I went shopping today. And on the corner here, bless Ventura, but it's got a lot of kooky people in it, a bunch of people, anti-maskers, man, like masks and vaccines have killed a thousand, a hundred thousand people and more and counting. (laughs) And, you know, and yeah, so there's, I don't know why that just came up, I guess, because I was just talking about unmasking, but um, I would like that sort of that kind of a national sigh of relief, you know, that that sigh of relief, if it's somehow not codified, but at least um, symbolicized, if that's a word, <laughs> you know, put, put forth into the nation. Um, that would be lovely, lovely. Uh, and in fact, something to look forward to, you know?
0: Because, because, because I, think what's, I think what's going to happen is, is um, most of us are in endurance mode, right? And human beings can, can be very focused when it's like, get through the storm. But I, I actually think a lot of the messy psychological and emotional stuff the baggage all of that' is going to start emptying out into our you know uh, uh, into the the ether you know once we've mostly got through it right so I think people are holding in a lot of frustration you know grief stress whatever and I just don't know if this society is truly ready to handle all of it and it doesn't mean that all of the energy is bad a lot of the energy will be whatever sexual energy or artistic energy right or joy I, I just don't there's know there's a difference Rob <laughs> what's that? <laughs> sexual energy and
1: artistic energy I think they're pretty much one of the same
0: yeah right Picasso would agree with you yeah that's a good, good <laughs> call but I, I guess my point is there's a sort of you know Necessary re, you know, uh, physical and spatial repression mm-hmm. happening right now, and so you know that will be unleashed, and and so.
1: Um, I wonder I, if I you, you it, just mentioned that the I think well people have been talking about the you know the, sort of the Roaring Twenties coming back, um, right? Uh, within two or three years, once we're really truly put the stuff behind us, um, so uh, it would be interesting to see how things kind of play out uh though i, I tell you it's th- these ups and downs also are not necessarily the best um you know we were just talking about balance earlier <laughs> and though we got we are in such a at such a low point it will certainly be I'll, I'll be totally fine with it jumping high uh and overshooting the sort of the balance mark for a little bit i think that's probably necessary in know or, in order to eventually uh find our balance uh but in, in a sense uh in a sense, this, this, this country, this culture has never been balanced. Um, and so that's part of the issue. So I, I don't know. It's, it will be interesting to see. I, I, obviously nobody has a crystal ball. Um,
0: because I, uh, I think that, that, yeah, you know, uh, generally, um, you know, the, the, the true human life force in all of its uncensored capacities mostly has been, allowed or constrained within the African-American population, right? And so, so I, I feel like expressions of, of grief or sexuality or, or complicated emotions aren't really allowed in the society in many ways in the sort of Anglo-Saxon tradition we have. But I think, you know, Black Americans, um, because they were marginalized and, and put to the side, you know, in some ways, um, have been allowed to, to express themselves without you know these these layers and filters that you know those of us in the 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 Calvinist net <laughs> of Puritan America you know have had to deal with. Um, you know uh, that that's a massive generalization, um, but I, I do think about that yeah, kind of I stuff. Mean- I,
1: yeah, I, I I certainly was very much attracted to to the life force in 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 those communities as far as you know my my interests go. Um, but I, I I tell you, Rob, I've always you know me, I've always felt a little bit like an outsider. You know, being well, Jewish yeah. makes you an outsider right away wherever you are. Pretty much um, being a secular Jew is <laughs> being an outsider even in the middle of Jerusalem. Um, but. Uh, I just, I, I don't know. I've never felt completely at ease in the American culture here. And I love this country. It's got an incredible uh, spirit, incredible sort of life force. Uh, uh, but at the same time, there's, uh, I never really kind of jived with it. I always feel whenever I go to Europe, I feel better there, uh, you know. Um, I'm not saying it's better there, just as an objective thing, which if there is such a thing. Um, but uh, I just never—I don't know. I uh, I have issues with this culture, a lot of issues. Um, but at the same time, I'm 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 in the middle of it. I embrace it. I'm—it's you know, definitely part of me. Um, but I'm always I'm always kind of yeah. on, the, on the outside. I feel like I'm on the outside. Uh, maybe I'm not, but I feel like I am.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's you know. Um, we we talked about this a little bit, but but you and I grew up in a um, in a a Jewish section of a, of the city of Peabody, north of Boston. And so, you know, I moved there when I was 14 or so, and I had never met a Jewish person in my life until that moment. And then suddenly all my friends were Jewish. Of course you would come from Israel, um, to, you know, Belmont and then Peabody. Um, but we grew up in this kind of an enclave in a way. And for me it was really interesting because I didn't know that I, Felt like an outsider because I had grown up, you know, in the mainstream, so to speak. Prior to moving to Peabody, I was, you know, in a community where everybody was white. Most most people were Irish American, uh, blue collar, and so. But I never really fit in, but didn't know it. And then when I, you know, uh, moved to to West Peabody, where you and I grew up with, and all my friends were Jewish, and there was a slightly different take on being an American in that world and i was accepted and i felt like i was kind of brought in obviously not as some you know obviously i was a gentile but i was sort of um i sort of identified with this idea of being an outsider within the larger culture in a way for me it wasn't so much about you know religion or or ethnic identification but almost mentally right just just Mm -hmm. not feeling um that I jived with it either. And I, I do feel like I participate in the culture, but I do always feel like, a, like an observer uh, in a way. I, I got to bring it back to Philip Roth again. I'm, I'm as, as I said, I'm in the middle of reading a book. And, yeah, well, he, um, so he went to Israel uh, to research his book, Operation Shylock, and he was in Jerusalem and he was in a ultra Orthodox neighborhood. He was observing um folks going back, doing their daily business, obviously wearing 19th century garb and so forth. And he he looked at them and he said, I can't believe these are the same people as me, that these are my people. And he said, um, "He said back in Newark, New Jersey, everyone was Jewish, but I never, ever remember seeing a single person wearing a skull cap. And he also, um, he was pointing out that he said, um, the BBC did some documentary of his life in the nineties and they started the, the show with, uh, klezmer music. And he said, um, he goes, I never heard klezmer music until I was in my sixties. So the idea that you would somehow identify my youth with klezmer music, he was pissed, you know, and it does make me think about, um, I mean, Peabody was as secular uh, as you could get, I don't ever remember seeing one of my Jewish friends wearing a yarmulke anywhere. Well, it's and funny I, say, I, you keep
1: saying Jewish. That like, I I never had a sense of Peabody being Jewish or West Peabody being Jewish. I, I really, I think it came from you. The fact that you like, wait a second, Gary Goldman, yeah, is Jewish. Uh, this guy is Jewish, and yeah, I'm Jewish. Uh, I'm like, well, sure, but I I don't think of these these are just Americans to me. These are weird Americans, you know. <laughs> Uh, again, I was just an outsider because I had just I had just come from Israel, where I was also an outsider because I had just come to Ru- from Russia to Israel, mm-hmm. you know, and spent six years there. So my my weird, strange, uh, you know, wandering Jew type of uh, bringing youth just made me always feel like I'm I'm an outsider, uh, or at least a foreigner. You know, maybe that's why Ooh. I think I. Try to belong by sort of trying so hard to erase my accent. You know, there was like a big, big, big deal for me because I was really—I got to master this language. I just, just <laughs> finished mastering Hebrew, and you know, boom, I'm out of, I'm out of Israel. <laughs> okay, so that's gone. Ooh. And Ooh. then I have this new language, and I had to ma- master it. And so the people around me—I I didn't even think of them as Jewish. Like, well, that's I mean,
0: interesting. And, you know, and see. So they, my friends there, made a point of of making sure I understood they were Jewish. Hmm. They uh, they almost uh, brought me in and, and and explained, you know, that I had just missed their their bar mitzvah, and um, they had to they could they could date uh, non Jewish women, but they were all going to marry Jewish women, and so I, I was kind of brought into. Uh, you know, uh, a cultural world that was just unknown to me, honestly. So, so it's that's fascinating because I, I, I felt none of that, Rob. We're, we're
1: neighbors, we were growing up in the same place. I felt none, zero of that. I mean, obviously, we didn't go to synagogues, so we didn't interact right. with, you know, specifically uh, the Jewish community in that sense. Um, um, and honestly, uh, living in Israel, we lived um, about three, four miles. Outside of Jerusalem, and we would always pass by you know, the, the sort of the, the Arab Palestinian places, and would stop there and would would go fix our car, uh, would go buy pork in Bethlehem, you know, with the Christian Jews. I mean, the Christian Arabs. Um, so, so, and I, for some strange reason, I always was always attracted to that. And, you know, the 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 call of the the muazin in the distance uh, was you know would lull me to sleep or wake me up in the morning sometimes. I miss that. I miss that that sort of like otherness that I saw around me as a little kid. Obviously, obviously there were so many issues and still are uh, between Jews and Arabs. But, you know, I mean, it, it's a stupid thing to say, but, you know, we are brothers, just it's a dysfunctional family. So it's like a family feud. Uh, we come from the Semitic people, you know. Uh, but I, as a kid, didn't get that. I'm like, w- I just, I just, I, li- I like this area over there. I like, I want to go. With- I hang out with these guys. Um, I remember hiking, hiking with my friend. We're, we're not supposed to hike there because he was, you know, close to Ramallah and uh, things were not, you know, little Jewish boys could have been easily <laughs> wiped out. But we would go uh, to Palestinian through Palestinian villages and just, you know. Eyeballed other kids kind of like, oh, suspiciously, but also like, you know, we didn't throw stones at each other. We didn't, you know, fight. Uh, it was just there uh, because there were neighbors. So as a kid, it was kind of a, an odd sensation. So when I came to America and and you say that we lived in this Jewish neighborhood, I didn't feel I didn't feel it at all. Uh, it was just like yet another set of foreigners
0: around me that I had to yeah. uh, sort of incorporate, you know? That, that makes sense because you're they're already foreign as as simply just being americans they're they're, they're and you they're, know
1: i I remember kind of also looking down my nose a little bit at American
0: Jews uh, I remember that, yeah, I do remember yes, that. you know with
1: their, but, their, when they they trying when spoke Hebrew with an American accent, it was like I just laughed, and now, of course, wow. I, when I try to speak Hebrew, which is so rusty um uh, i you know, I had the same I, accent. <laughs>
0: This is fascinating. And I, I almost think, because because uh, I can assure you that my friends had a very distinct feeling of being other. And I and I say that because Gary Gullman, who is is now a fairly famous comedian, some of you may know him, he did a podcast about a year ago and I was listening and he talked about his, he was talking to uh, another comedian. She had grown up in New York and he was just talking about his youth. And he said, yeah, I grew up in West Peabody, which was the, uh, the little Israel of Peabody. So I think that that's sort of the sense that I was brought into, right? That you had, that I, I had came come as an outsider from the South shore of Massachusetts to the North shore. And, and, and I was sort of, uh, 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 what's the word? Sort of enculturated or brought in, so to speak. Um, yeah, I mean, you would have had a very different view, a more, the distinctions among Massachusetts Americans would not have been as subtle for you. Mm. Yeah, probably. If that yeah, makes any sense. Yeah.
1: It's weird, man, because we don't really, as kids, we don't really choose where we grow up or, yeah. or, you know. So it's depending on our psychology, I guess, and how 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 do we adjust to these new places, especially if you move around a lot. I'm I'm jealous. I'm jealous of people who, like my wife, for instance, who's grown up in one place uh, uh, you know, for the first 20 years of her life, and then she just couldn't wait to get the heck out. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I've, I always want to get the heck out just because after a while I'm like, well, I'm, you know, what's the, what's, I, I love, I love, I live for newness. The, I, I, um, I, I love change and, uh, travel. It's just, it's one of those things that just kind of got ingrained in me that if I spend six, seven years in a place, uh, I begin to feel very, uh, you know, itchy to get out, um, and and to try something different. Of course, it's changing a little bit now that I'm getting older. Uh, I have almost like the reverse, the reverse um, want of of maybe staying a little bit longer in a place or putting down a little bit of roots. At the same time, you know, I think I'm, I'm I would be lying to you if I said that that's something that I really look forward to. I still want to tor- tear those roots up and and just keep going. Um, but it's harder because again, our, the older brain is. You know what's the expression? It takes twenty years. Well, it used to be the expression. It's probably way, way more now or, or less now. It takes twenty years for uh, a liberal to become a conservative without changing a single idea. Um, right. Right. So we right. got to keep on rolling. We got to, uh, and it gets harder because the brain solidifies, and it's the plasticity, neuroplasticity is is always there, but it's harder to really engage it. Um, and learn new things, um, which is why I think um, I don't understand what people st- I, I do understand why people stop reading fiction, the older they get, because that seems to be a trend. I've noticed that an- anecdotally, uh, I'm totally, going to fight true. it myself. I'm going to completely fight that myself uh, and continue to try to read literature, uh, fiction specifically, because uh, I think that's something that I have to go against the grain at this point in this stage of my life. Because, you know, like you said, you you are loving biographies. I mean, I've I've loved biographies, but I never was really that into that genre because of Joyce. Joyce kinda of spoiled it for me a little bit with his biography uh coin you know, the coined out that word. And the fact that it's there really is no perfect biographer out there. Uh so you do you uh, you skew things, you have to, but just by nature, the nature of the work, you, you're looking at somebody from the outside and the consciousness inside is inaccessible by definition. You can only see what's what's going on from the outside. And so therefore you will skew things, you will okay. get things wrong, or at least not the way that consciousness appears to be from the inside. Um, so, but, but that's why I think, maybe part of the reason why I love fiction so much, because it is the pure product of that consciousness. It's not writing about some, some other consciousness. It's about, it's just this pure product that comes from the, the inside. Yeah. Um, not to say again, not to, you know, not to slam biographies and biographers. I think they do incredible jobs, some of them and very necessary job. Um, but it's not the same. Or yeah. like you said, they could be an incredible writer, and that's that really. That if if that if their own consciousness gets into the play, and and right. you start mixing the two, and then and in an artistic and aesthetically pleasing way, then two thumbs up for me, you know.
0: Uh, and and you know, uh, maybe to the detriment of enjoying biographies. I mean, I'm I am always aware that you know this is a person who interviewed people who went through the archives, who read the letters and had to make judgments, right. And had to make decisions and then had an editorial team that pushed back on him. And so it's a, it's a product. And, and so I'm almost just as fascinated and interested with like, you know, I, I get to see all the decisions you made, how, how you, you know, how do you attack Picasso? How do you, mm. you know, what, what's the approach that that's almost um no, uh, I I do some writing myself, so that's almost as interesting for me. I, I'm not completely just giving myself, you know, uh, wholly to the biographer. I'm I'm always keeping that analytical part in reserve. You know, I'm very curious about Rob.
1: Is when you yeah. when you um, really get into the biography uh, specifically of Picasso. I'm I'm curious. I'd like to talk to you later on about how it changes your perception of the art yeah. Um, yeah. because I, I wonder because I mean I, for me it, it can definitely change the perception but at the same time the appreciation of art is is pre-rational or I don't know post-rational it's not it's not the rational is there it's a component but it, if it's the predominant component then you're missing the point. If you completely, uh, then you're also missing the point. Totally. So this 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 weird balance, nope. and so sometimes I feel like you can read too much about something, and then it 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 constrains you from seeing the art in 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 spontaneous way.
0: Yeah, you know I, I mean? totally. And and um, you know, you 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 were the one who came up with the name for our podcast, Feeling Bookish Podcast, and and so I only, you know, respond to art. To paintings, to sculpture that that hit me, you know, uh, behind or below the rational experience, right? So Picasso is one of them. Mm-hmm. So um, I understand that concern, but I, I've always been very good, whether it's art or literature or music, classical music tip, to, to have almost the, the experiential uh, relationship with the art and then to also have this sort of academic critic kind of person who also, you know, uh, does his thing. So, yeah, I, I I do understand the concern, but I'm, I've been pretty good. It's not really a concern. It's not
1: really a concern. I just don't, I just, I, it's sometimes hard for me to, to put that aside, this, the, the the knowledge that I have about an artist. um, Yeah. They have those friends. Eyes. I mean, I you know, I, art is supposed to take your breath away, and that 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 moment of like <gasps> that moment of like that, that when you get maybe a little tear in your eyes because you're so uh, uh, affected emotionally by art. Um, it aided by by knowledge of of how maybe uh, the art was produced and what circumstances, or what's the context. Um, but that's that's that follows that ah moment. It's it's afterwards. But that initial ah, if it's not there, then you can't manufacture it. Yeah, totally. I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: So you know? yeah. So I I'm not interested in, you know, the pre-Raphaelites, for example. So I I'm just not going to spend a lot of time. You know.
1: Well, actually, if you let's their, say then
0: then you then you use or... another
1: art form like film, and you go to Tarkovsky, and. Um, Uh, And you watch some of his film about your early Christian iconography, the way he films it, the way the setting is, the time, the timing, and you suddenly see something uh, in in art that before previously didn't speak to you at all. And suddenly you see it through this other artist's eye. You know, he's not a biographer. He's an artist. Uh, Of course, the two could be be combined. But, you know, you know what I'm talking about. He's he's just a pure artist, I think, Tarkovsky. And so in a sense, that's, that's why, that's how I read as well. You know, when you, when you, when some artist tells you, Oh my gosh, you gotta go, you gotta check this out. You gotta, and then maybe writing something about it, uh, which of course is a rational thing because, you know, you're using language, but an artist can give you kind of this, this idea of the feel behind it. And then again, you see something from different, from different you know, perspective and you see, you see the beauty, um, so uh, that's what I mean by trying to be open as we get older, uh, and not to say, you know, I know you just said that, but that I don't, I'm not interested in the pre-Raphaelites. Pre-Rapha- you know, you just, you just kind of close that door. But I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that the beauty is there, whether we see it or not. Perhaps it was there, and now is inaccessible to mo- the modern mind. Um, and so there are there are sometimes ways to get in there. So you just. Be open to things. Like how do you meet the, the love of your life? Do you plan it? Do you say, I need this and this and this and my partner? Some people do that and maybe it works for them. But if you're not open, if you're not open to this, like something, some sort of a chemistry happening between this you and a stranger, you know, <laughs> always our the, the our partners, our, the loves of our lives are always strangers at first. But so if you're not open to that, some something something happening there... Then, if you're just kind of had this these ideas, then then you miss it. You know, you walk by somebody who could have made you super happy for the rest of your life. You know?
0: Yeah. Well, um, you and I, you and I hit the lottery there. We yeah, did we did. Well. We got lucky. And uh, but I think
1: it's because because we're open to that. Because we kind of yeah. made sure that. And I I know people who bemoan yeah. the fact that they 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 haven't met the right person, this and that, but they're That's closed. They're they're they're. You know, their subway doors are closed. You can't get on that train. And so how do you expect to get
0: there? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, in life. But life, my point is life, it gets harder, Rob. It gets harder with age. Oh, it does. So and, and, and you get, yeah. um, you know, to put it in the language to say, my dad or something, you get kicked around and you get mm. harder and you, you close up a little bit. Um, right. And, you know, you have to change and you have to, I mean, unless you, even if you are a monk in a in a uh, a meditation cell, you know you do you do have to harden up is not the word that I'm looking for, but you know uh, you know people and places and situations can hurt you. Your your feelings can hurt, and mm-hmm. um, you know you have to try to absorb that. And, you know, sometimes you have to change the playbook a little bit. I mean, that's, that's been my experience, but yeah, I mean, you don't want to wall yourself off so that you don't feel any pain or that you don't hurt or that you're not able to be flexible. Right. And, and adjust. And um, I mean, you and I are married, so it's not like openness to some, you know, other person, but, but a friendship, right. A friendship that could, wow, you know, this person um, could be really, instrumental to the second half of my life, you know? Um, and I, I find right. that, I find that more ch- challenging in a way is to, um, you know, I mean, how, how do I, how do I forge a kind of friendship I have with you? you? know, that's, it gets much harder, you know, the kind of openness you and I had towards one another at 14 and 15, you know, it's harder to find that at 50 with you just meet somebody. It's not impossible. Um, a lot of people have talked about that that it you know kinds of right. friends you've met you've had when you were younger it's very hard to repeat that intensity or that bond you know mm-hmm.
1: yeah but but again it's 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 that that function of of being open to something new um and just just not take yourself too seriously i think if we start taking ourselves too seriously that's what hardens us that's what makes us go I already know things. I don't need to know any new things. Um, oh, or yeah, yeah. or not, you know, yeah. just, just, I think humor for me is super important. Uh, it's probably the most important thing. Humor and beauty. That's all I really, <laughs> those are my, my two guiding lights in, in life. Um, yeah, I, I think we should probably end on that note, no? <laughs>
0: yeah, man. Totally. I, I, I do want to, um, I want to end with, uh, um, I want to throw this out there. If anybody has uh, read this book, maybe they can uh, send a tweet. I, I heard this fabulous interview with our old friend Christopher Leiden, who has the uh, the wonderful mm-hmm. podcast Radio Open Source. And he's my hero if it comes to like, if you have to have a hero in the podcast radio world, he's it. And he did a, an interview that I was listening to while exercising called um, Unmasking of America. And he interviewed um, do you know much about this guy, um, Kurt uh, Anderson? He's a W. Yeah, he's also a podcaster, guy. and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, um, studio, he's an 60- author, so he wrote quite a, a big he's book, an, he's written yeah. some novels, anyways. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote this book called, um, where's the title here, uh, Evil Geniuses The Unmasking of America, a Recent History. So I thought, oh, it's just another book about you know how awful the Republicans are. I, I already know. I, but I, I trust Christopher Lydon. So I was listening to it while I was on the treadmill and um, there's a, there's a bit of that, you know, what, what we missed, uh, you know, since the sixties and how Reagan and Nixon and all these people, et cetera. But the one thing that I, I um, I'm going to get this book because apparently there's a huge chunk of this book. And it talks about how American culture and society used to change very visibly every 10 years or so, the the fashion, the the music, the movies. And, you know, he said even uh, he remembers in the 60s as a kid, you know, literally two months would go by and a new pop song would come out and it would be so more advanced that you just laugh that you used to listen to a pop song from two months ago. And he was just saying how he believes that in the 1990s, that essentially, we've entered into this period of um, stagnation where, you know, a song from 1995 sounds like it could have been written in 2016, or the way people dressed in 1998 is pretty much the same as today. And I I feel that, and I've I've hmm. wondered, you know, what the hell is going on. So he didn't go into great detail, but he did he does explore that, and he. He seems to think that it has been somewhat, it's going to sound conspiratorial, but powers that be economically in terms of the the kinds of tax policies and the kinds of political initiatives that they've wanted to, to pass and promote through the powers that be have essentially wanted to create the feeling that. There is no possibility of change. There is no real point in change that kind of the way things are is just the way things are, right? There is no universal health care. Well, the, the,
1: nihilism, the nihilism definitely took over um, yeah. our psyches. I think it's also – note that when that started happening is when the, we, we all disappeared into the screens, in that, into our screens. That's when it started happening. I think there's so, a disconnect with yes. the natural world. Uh, I don't want to sound like an old hippie, uh, it, and it's a huge topic that we obviously are not going to get to. But we are uh, living in screens. We're living in t- lies. We're living in a world that is two dimensional and pretending it is three dimensional. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, there's there's a bunch of. I remember what coming back from summer camp when I was you know in the eighties and the teenager, five weeks away from no no TV nothing. Obviously no no internet but back then. So no phones. Uh, I would come back home to Peabody, uh, West West Peabody, the Jewish section, <laughs> and I, I would start. You yeah, know, start of course TV. I miss TV. I start watching TV, and so my gaze, as I would watch, let's you know, say there's a horse running across the screen. My my head would turn away from the screen to follow the horse as it's supposed to just exit the screen, like naturally a horse would, would not just stay in one place, right, as it's running. And, and that would happen for maybe, you know, 20 minutes and I'll be very confused. And then eventually my brain would just like snap back into it. I oh, it's just TV. You just keep your head in one position. Then, yeah, the movement is illusory. It's it's not real. But yet we just pretend that it's real. And it's yeah. just, and it's worse. It's gotten much, much worse. I think it's, um I think it's, that's, that's part of the reason why I'm pro spacing out and pro turning the computer off and putting the phone down and putting the tablet down. And just spacing out into the real three dimensional, four dimensional world, um, it, it's it's a, it's a panacea. Not a panacea, but it's it's some sort of a medicinal uh, approach to um, to our life in. What's that? Uh, the tunnel, well, William Gas. You know, life in a chair is a big thing over there. Is you know, sitting lights, life in a chair. Well, I think it's life in front of a screen is is our sort of our our current moment and it seems to be uh really fucking us up uh in some <laughs> some major major ways that are i think largely still unexplored i mean there have been a slew of books about it and again i don't i i i'm not a back to nature kind of weird weirdo no you can't um, be a
0: luddite i mean that, that's no really no not a luddite
1: yeah. though luddites are totally misunderstood historically and it's a whole different story um but but there's there's a um, all this convenience all this convenience comes at a price and this price uh, is is we're going to debt we're very much in debt right now it could be part of our evolutionary thing I don't know we, we, but maybe we'll disappear into screens we'll become virtual and just uh, you know that's that's possible I I, I don't know I'm I, I'm willing to entertain that idea I'm a science fiction fan um, but I, I see the effects of increased screen use are having on my kids, uh, on me, on the people around me. So I, I, I'm not blind to it, and I refuse to be following uh, unquestioningly into the screen. I, I want to make sure that I uh, I really just have some sort of perspective. And I think with that said, right, I think we should probably end this, Rob
0: we should well it's been it's been fun man it, it was like an old school just you and i um, yeah. you know hanging out the, hanging out in the kitchen with uh you know a bottle of fernet or something i don't know um well cool dude let's uh we'll catch up again and uh thank you everyone for listening Bye.
1: you can find feeling bookish on twitter at feel bookish and on instagram at feeling bookish podcast